Hello everyone and welcome to the Becker Spine Orthopedic and Pain Management Driven ASC plus the Future Spine Virtual Event. I am Laura Deirda, Editor-in-Chief of Becker's ASC Review and Becker's Spine Review. I am pleased to be joined today by Dr. Cynthia Emery, Associate Chief Medical Officer of Surgery and Vice Chair of the Department of Orthopedic Surgery at Wake Forest School of Medicine in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Dr. Emery is an inspiring leader and in the orthopedic field, and we are thrilled to have her here today speaking with us for this fireside chat. Before I jump into our questions, um, Dr. Emery, could you please tell us a little bit about your background? Sure. Well, Laura, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you today. Uh, as you indicated, my name is Cynthia Emery, and I'm at Wake Forest School of Medicine. I'm an orthopedic oncologist there, and I've been on our faculty since 2010. I started with some of my leadership opportunities pretty early in my academic career, uh, starting with our medical director in 2012 and then became vice chair in 2015, and then most recently joined uh, our associate chief medical officer staff about a year and a half ago. And so it's really given me an opportunity to understand the complexities of orthopedic care, not only within our health system, our hospital, but also our region and nation. Fantastic. Well, I'll jump into the questions now that we have today. Um, what do you see as being the biggest challenge in your practice at the moment? I think resistance to change and communication, they're long-standing themes, uh, and they serve as a source of conflict in medicine, especially in an academic environment with a highly matrixed large organization, such as Wake Forest. Now we, use those, now we use these words such as a new normal or pivot and adapt, but the fundamental themes are the same. How do we quickly adjust to our new environment that we're forced into, and how do we communicate with thousands of people what those changes really entail? There wasn't any time for strategic planning or investment to prepare for the impact of a pandemic. Healthcare workers and administrators are making real-time decisions and changes and processes without pilot programs and analyses. And then two days later, we're having to do it again as the environment changes and gives us new challenges to overcome. Most cities have been in some type of high acuity phase since early March with the COVID pandemic when businesses and elective surgeries were shut down. In orthopedics, there's been a wide spectrum of how this has impacted us. Over these weeks, uh, we've had some people working over 100 hours a week on the administrative side of things, managing furloughs, providing contingency plans for COVID surges, surgery cancellations and reentry processes. And then on the other side, you've had some surgeons who are essentially out of work for six to eight weeks and are desperate to get back. So the emotional impact of both of these situations is very different. And figuring out how to reintegrate our teams, I think, is one of the largest challenges we have. Take the practice manager of a large orthopedic group who's likely been working nonstop for two months. The practice manager has shut down clinics, started a telehealth practice, has managed the P&L of, of this practice, all while listening to the concerns of the staff and the providers about paychecks, travel, and personal constraints that may be impacting their professional life. On the other side of things, you have a joint surgeon who's been in practice for 15 years, does the same thing every time for their cases and thrives in a world of order and predictability. The surgeon's been out of the OR, out of clinic, had to learn telehealth and likely function without a PA, maybe he's been furloughed. And the surgeon was like clockwork. You knew OR times at the surgery center to within five minutes of start and stop so that the surgeon could go back and forth between rooms with such cadence that it reminded you of a piece of music. And now the surgeon is hearing this cacophony of sounds. So that's comprised of temperature monitoring, PPE, air exchange rates, and family members' complaints of visitor restrictions and delays. 
So the routine is no longer there. And my concern is the risk of burnout to this group. Absolutely. I think there's a lot to think about there. Um, is there anything that you're doing to kind of prepare and mitigate some of these challenges? So we're trying to have a lot of these one-on-one -on -one conversations, having administrative and, and perioperative leads, contacting the surgeons and the teams. What are your concerns? What are your fears? We have different centers within our health system that are at different points of the reentry process. And so some of the things that we have already started and lessons learned from some of our other sites we're having to do over again in some of our other health systems uh, in our other hospitals. And so working together and sharing those lessons learned has really been very helpful. Great. And then looking at uh, the pandemic overall, how do you think it will change the orthopedic field in general and then healthcare as well? I think now the general public and government, uh, they have a better appreciation of how much healthcare impacts their lives. Before COVID-19, healthcare was poorly understood by people who didn't work in the field. Patients perceive that hospitals have billions of dollars and can provide care for anyone, anytime without having to worry about finances. The government payers attempt to control costs by limiting reimbursements to hospitals and with little incentive on the preventive aspect of healthcare. Healthcare expenditures make up 20% of our GDP. And to give you some comparison, we all remember the housing crisis of 2008. A few years prior to that crisis, residential construction was around 6% of GDP and bottomed out around two and a half. Most of us saw the huge economic impact that that had, and that was going from 6% to two and a half. Imagine what would happen if the healthcare spending was cut in half. In addition to the very real economic impact the pandemic has had, we have yet to truly appreciate the health consequences of COVID-19. We hear a lot in the news about how sick these patients are, they're in the ICU for weeks at a time, and we hear about our healthcare workers who are working in an incredibly stressful and potentially dangerous environment. But who's talking about the 45-year-old woman who may have cancer that hasn't been caught yet because her mammogram was postponed, or the man who may have prostate cancer but doesn't know it because his regular checkup was canceled? What's happened to the patient with a torn rotator cuff who wasn't able to work for the past three months and has now been laid off and no longer has health insurance? These interruptions in care necessary because of the pandemic can permanently change the course of these people's lives. Absolutely, those are definitely key concerns, obviously, and something that, you know, is part of the humanity of healthcare in addition to looking at um, what's happening on the clinician and clinical level. So thank you for going through that. I'm wondering now, looking a little bit further ahead, where do you um, think the ortho orthopedic field will be? What do you think it'll look like one year from now and then even further five years from now? Um, over the next year, I anticipate our field will be a lot in flux. Many hospitals are facing months of limited OR capacity due to staffing and bed constraints, uh, which will in turn limit the ability of the orthopedic surgeon to serve their patient populations. Uh, we've already been hearing stories from trainees who are finishing their fellowships in two months and have recently found out that their jobs no longer exist um, due to their, uh, their supposed practice uh, financial constraints. Uh, so they're now trying to find a job. Imagine thinking six months ago, you've got this great job lined up and you're finally ready to start your practice, you're done with training, only to have all of that stripped from you in a matter of weeks. And these trainees are now desperate for jobs, many turning to locum work or choosing a position that's good enough for now. I think the attrition rate uh, will increase over the next few years, not only in our new hires, but also in our senior surgeons who aren't able to successfully adapt to a new environment. Our patients are timid about coming to the doctor, um, and many are not enthusiastic yet about having an operation, whether it's concerned about COVID-19, 
financial constraints or just too much stress along with everything else. I think it's going to take some time, likely months, uh, if not years, before patients feel comfortable seeking out elective orthopedic care with the same rigor as which they did before COVID. Um, and we're also going to be making some difficult financial decisions over the next several months and years. Large health systems have been losing millions of dollars a day. So capital expenditures for new things in the OR won't be happening. Time away and expense coverage for presentations at meetings, those are going to be limited. And recruitment efforts will likely be tempered for the next few years as we build back our volumes. I think five years from now, we'll be in a much more favorable financial picture, allowing more investment and growth into practices, uh, as well as new hires and advances in technology. But I think for the next year or two, at least, we'll be very limited. Got it. And um, looking at the landscape, um, as you mentioned, you know, especially with the new surgeons, maybe not being able to go into the positions that um, they thought they were going to at large institutions and um, some of the financial situation at hospitals. Do you think that um, there will be more, uh, I guess, tendency to go towards um, independent groups or, or do you think still there'll be a, a really big, um, you know, move towards hospital employment and other types of situations, even though there's some of those uh, concerns and considerations there? Mm -hmm. I think in general, the shift or trend will be more towards an employed model. Larger health systems have been able to weather the financial burden with the millions or billions of dollars in cash reserves. Uh, that's much harder for a smaller practice to recover from the substantial financial losses that they sustained for the COVID-19 pandemic. So I'd be surprised if small or moderate-sized groups are even hiring at this point. Got it. It makes sense. Um, the next question here, I want to talk a little bit about the technology in healthcare. I know you just mentioned that likely there might not be as much capital expenditure, especially over the next year, but what technology do you think really will be essential in orthopedics going forward in both the near and long term? I think you hit the nail on the head with the word essential. Um, orthopedics has traditionally been on the forefront of new technology in the OR, whether it's robotics, new implants, new techniques and lots of gadgets and shiny new toys that we see at meetings that we want to bring back for use in the OR. Um, with the financial constraints that everyone is seeing, a lot of it's going to be on hold. It's unlikely that hospitals are going to be buying million-dollar robots for joint surgeons anytime soon, and implant cost is going to be on the front and center for large health systems and ASEs. We won't be going to meetings to see the latest and greatest devices. Most of those meetings are virtual if being held at all. And industry is going to feel this impact for months to years to come as well. Uh, what we need the most in coming months and years is technology that will save us time and money. Telehealth is probably the best example of that. Now that uh, video visits are supported by payers, and hopefully this will be a permanent change, we have the ability to reach a larger population and provide care that they need at a time that's convenient for a patient. Think of a single mother of three who works two jobs and has shoulder pain. For her to go see a doctor, she has to take off work, perhaps from both jobs, arrange for childcare, or bring her children with her to the office, and all of the headaches that go along with that. For those of you with children, think of how enjoyable it is to get them ready to leave the house. While we can't examine patients via telehealth, we can obtain a pertinent history and hear their stories and actually talk with our patients. We can get back to treating the patient, not treating an x-ray. After the initial visit, we can always arrange for x-rays to be done locally, and these can often be sent to our own imaging systems through image sharing and exchange systems that are very much uh, adapted across multiple platforms. And that's a relatively recent technology that we've underutilized. If there's a suspected surgical issue, we can likely make that determination 
probably from the initial telehealth visit and then arrange for an in-office visit and final decision and examination then. Got it. That's a very helpful perspective to have and think about as um, the industry and the field moves forward. The final question I have here today is where do you see the best opportunity for practice growth um, going forward and how do you expect to grow professionally as well? I think the best opportunity for practice growth is being accessible to patients, uh, whether it's in person or virtually. Many patients aren't going to want to come to a busy clinic and be surrounded by strangers, regardless of mask requirements and screening protocols. Uh, meeting them virtually through a video visit can be a way to establish trust and build a relationship and build your practice through word of mouth. Ensuring your practice has an active online presence is critical too. Leveraging search engine optimizations, providing short videos featuring all of your providers, let them see who you are behind the mask. It's also important to ensure that your patients have time to discuss their concerns. That may be with you, your nurse, your PA, but those things are going to take more time now that they did in the past. It's not going to be as easy as walking in and saying, Mrs. Jones, you've got really bad knee arthritis. I can do your knee in two weeks. What do you say? There's a lot more that patients are asking about now, and they have fears and concerns, and they want to talk to somebody about all those things. Professional growth is going to be different, too. While many groups have made the necessary changes to virtual educational experiences, there's also a limit to the number of Zoom meetings and WebExes and podcasts and webinars that you can attend before reaching a threshold. Um, in addition to focused virtual experiences, which can be really valuable, I think it's also important to have self-reflection during this time. No matter what role you have in your practice or health system, you have influence and the ability to lead. And so professional growth can be anything from presenting your best self in a virtual format to leading a health system out of the red by the end of the calendar year or fiscal year. Um, skills such as problem solving, communication, and conflict will be necessary more than ever now during this time of disruption. And learning your own triggers and biases and blind spots will help you be more effective in your role. I've had the opportunity to work very closely with a group of leaders whom I didn't have much interaction with before this pandemic, and I've learned a lot about myself and these leaders during the time. Building these relationships, I think, will only help strengthen our future work together as a group and be more successful as a unified front. That's great insight. I think, you know, you really um, hit the nail on the head when talking about how things are changing and what, you know, surgeons can do in order to make sure they continue to grow and develop and have an eye on the future. Um, one last question here. When you're looking at somebody who can be really successful within kind of this new, um, I guess, new normal, as we put it, um, post-pandemic or, or in the middle of the pandemic and moving forward, are there any skills that you think are different or um, I guess, characteristics of a person that will really be essential and important for leaders than they were, I guess, before all this began? Sure. I think two of the ones that I would highlight the most would be resilience and innovation. And so these are really challenging times for everyone. And people have concerns about different things and something may be important to one person isn't important to someone else. And being able to understand and hear concerns and listen to people's fears and being able to bounce back from that and be able to withstand all of the change and all of the long hours, I think is really important now. And then being innovative with your solutions. So how can we swing, how, how can we shift or pivot to something that's more virtually based? Um, how can we think creatively about educational experiences for our trainees? How can we provide patient care uh, from afar? All of those things require a lot of innovation. So I think that that's really key right now too. 
Fantastic. Well, thank you again, Dr. Emery, for being here and sharing your insights with us. This is great information, and uh, we're looking forward to continuing the conversation in the future. Likewise. Thank you for having me.